Hello, I'm Dr. Michelle Buckley from Iowa State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. Thanks so much for joining us on Boz and Bleeds, sponsored by the American Association of Small Ruminant Practitioners. Just a quick note before we get started, this work is also supported by the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture Agricultural and Food Research Initiative Competitive Program Antimicrobial Resistance Grant Number 2020-04197, which funds my research on improving antibiotic stewardship in dairy goats to assure food safety and milk quality. As always, if you have any questions about any of our episodes, please email them to dairygoatextension at iastate.edu. I hope you enjoy today's show. Thanks for joining us today on Season 1 of Boz and Bleats, the American Association of Small Ruminant Practitioners podcast. This season, we're focusing on improving milk quality and food safety in dairy goats. Today's guest is Dr. Fauna Smith from UC Davis, and we'll be chatting about milk quality in various types of goat production settings. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Smith. Could you start us off with a little background information on your role in veterinary medicine and the dairy goat community? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, so I um, am an assistant professor of livestock medicine and herd health at um, the University of California, Davis. Um, I'm new to this role, um, but I have been a lifelong dairy goat producer. Um, So I grew up on a goat farm, a dairy goat farm in California, non-commercial, but um, a homesteading farm. So um, we used the goat milk for all sorts of our own um, use, um, milk, cheese, yogurt, et cetera. Um, And then I actually, um, I graduated from veterinary school in 2005 and took a job in New Zealand where I practiced um, for 10 years. And um, during my time down there, I um, did quite a bit of work with um, commercial cow and goat dairies in New Zealand. Um, and, um, have always been really involved in the dairy goat industry and have been involved in, um, you know, herd situations where, um, you know, we're trying to figure out why there are milk quality issues or how we can improve milk quality, um, both in a commercial setting as well as, um, kind of in your homesteading type, um, environment. Awesome. Well, some international experience uh, that'll, I'm sure, have uh, you've got some interesting stories to tell from that those few years of your life. Um, so let's just kind of start with the basics as far as milk quality goes. How do we define milk quality, and um, what metrics do we use to evaluate it? There's four components to producing quality milk, um, and it starts with healthy animals and it's not just utter health and it's not just like the milk after it comes out of the animal, but starting with healthy animals and then in particular healthy mammary systems. Um, and then, um, the, 
good milking hygiene practices and then good milk handling practices, right? So it's kind of this chain of custody. It starts with the animal. It, it's what you do during milking and then what you do after milking once the milk, once you're handling the milk. And all those things are, those all have equal impact on our ability to produce quality. Really good milk quality is having milk that is just milk, right? So it's going to be free of debris and sediment. It's going to be free of abnormal color or odor or off flavors. Um, it's going to have low bacterial counts. It's going to be free of chemicals, which might include things like antibiotics, um, detergents that are used to clean the milking equipment, um, teat dips, all those types of things, making sure that the milk doesn't get contaminated with those things. Um, and then being of normal composition and acidity. So things like, um, you know, normal fat content, protein content. So those, like all of that goes into like, what is milk quality and really the quality of the raw milk as it comes off of the farm and then is used it like that's really what determines the quality of milk products so it's really that raw milk product whether it is being consumed as a raw milk product or whether it's going in to be pasteurized milk for consumption or whether it's going to be used for um, cheese making or even if it's going to be used for like non um, consumable products so things like lotions and soaps like the quality of the milk is going to impact the quality of your product. How do those regulations vary based on your location? And let's just keep this to the U.S. So there's like when it comes to um, commercial operations, um, there are federal regulations that are like an umbrella that every state has to um, abide by. And then individual states have the ability to make those regulations like more stringent. And so I live in California. It's a really good example. California has more stringent regulations than the federal requirements. So um, for, um, and those regulations are going to include things like the somatic cell count of a bulk tank sample, the bacterial count of a bulk tank sample. In California, we have a coliform requirement. So coliforms are a specific type of bacteria that are associated with fecal contamination. And so California has regulations regarding coliform counts, whereas the federal regulations don't actually have coliform count regulations. Um, and then there's also like components. So you have to have a certain percentage fat in the milk. You need to have a, per certain, a certain percentage um, solids non-fat um, in the milk to like meet the the regulations if you're um, producing at a commercial level um, like a grade a dairy and then in some places you have something like a grade b dairy which is for um, cheese production only and um, there's like in california we use there are no new permits being given for grade b dairies but grandfathered in grade b dairies are still allowed to produce milk um, and then, and then where things really get different are um, your cottage industry producers. So in California, there is no cottage industry production of um, dairy products. So 
somebody with their small herd of goats on their farm cannot sell milk products in California. However, if you go to Oregon, who's our next door neighbor in Oregon, if you have less than nine milking does in your herd, nine does or less, you are actually allowed to sell milk to the public off your farm. Um, you're actually can sell um, cheese products off your farm um, to the general public, as long as they come to your farm to buy them. Um, and that also, there are places I know in the, um, in New England where that's allowed. So the state by state regulations of cottage industry is very, very different. So it's really important if you're a producer, whatever state you're producing in that you find out what the regulations are and whether or not you're allowed to sell milk as a cottage producer. And where can people go to find those um, regulations? Typically, it's going to be your state food and agriculture department. So in California, it's the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Um, and you can go and see what the milk ordinances are and like what are the regulations about selling milk. Um, so it, that's, that would be the best resource. Um, and then if like you're having problems finding that kind of information, um, use reaching out to extension people is another really good way to like find, they will have the resources to help you find that information. So it sounds like even the definition of a commercial herd varies widely based on the state definition. There's no federal definition, right? Correct. Well, that's really good to know. It sounds like um, folks have some digging to do before they even start trying to sell uh, products, whether it's, you know, from their own home or, or to a commercial producer or a processor. So let's talk more about the variations in the dairy goat industry um, and all the different types of production settings we, that we see. Um, how do expectations for milk quality vary based on um, the size of the operation and the desired end product? I feel strongly that if the milk is going for human consumption, we should all be trying to have the best possible milk quality that we can. And obviously in commercial operations, there's like a minimum standard in which you have to meet. And from my point of view, like that's a really good metric for even home producers to use to assess their own milk quality. Um, so I think for me, it might not be as much about the size of the operation or whether they're commercial or a, a cottage producer. It's... It, it's really about the product. So for example, raw milk versus pasteurized milk products. Like there are commercially, there are hugely different standards for what raw milk needs to be if it's going to go go for human consumption as a raw milk product, either as fluid milk or as a cheese. And then like the what if you have milk that you're selling that is raw milk but is going to be pasteurized, the regulations are different. Um Things like TB and brucella testing, if you're consuming raw milk products from your animals, like in a commercial operation, that's going to be, in California at least, it's a requirement that once a year the whole herd is TB and brucella tested. So um, if you're producing um, raw milk at home for personal consumption, then that's something that you might want to consider is TB and brucella testing your herd, particularly if you are in places where that might still be an issue. So like the upper peninsula of Michigan, um, 
there, that is not a brucella free zone. Um, so that is something to consider if you're raising goats and drinking raw milk um, in that region of the country. And then in terms of like coliform counts or bacterial counts, so the state of California for raw milk, it's less than 10 coliform colonies per mill and less than 15,000 um, total bacterial counts per mill. And like for a cottage producer, they can still get that information. So they can send samples to the lab. Um, most your most of your like um, animal health and food quality labs um, run by like the state university. So like at Iowa or at California at Davis, like you can send it to those labs and get that information. Um, so I think like there are ways that producers, cottage producers can follow the regulations for commercial. And it also, you have to think about like liability and your risk to yourself. If you're going to sell those products, like you should be doing everything you can to make your product as safe as possible. For products where the risk to human health is less um, because they're not necessarily being ingested, right? Like, so soaps and lotions, you know, yeah, you might be a little more lax. However, good milk quality, if you have milk that is salty because there's mastitis or the acidity is wrong or there's a odor to it because it's mastitic, like that milk is not going to be as good quality for making those products and might actually alter the chemistry that's involved in making those products if you don't have good milk quality. So while you're unlikely to make somebody ill from it, your product might not be as good. So essentially, it sounds like the goal of milk quality is safe milk for consumption, right? We want a lot of the good things in milk and as little or no, none of the bad things in bad quote unquote things as possible. Right. And the other thing um, is that regardless of what product you're making and whether you're drinking just milk for yourself in your home or you're selling milk um, is, is also freedom from adulteration. So antibiotic withdrawals, anti-inflammatory withdrawals, deworming withdrawals, all those things are like, I think super important and particularly the places where I see the most um, problem, like with people not understanding that like giving a dewormer or giving an anti-inflammatory animal means that they should not be consuming that milk in their herd. I mean, from their herd during the time when that animal is being treated, like it shouldn't be different between a commercial producer and at home producer and making sure that you are talking like your veterinarians are giving you withhold periods for drugs that you're administering to your animals. Okay, so can you touch on kind of the different ways that um, operations might evaluate milk quality? So milk quality evaluation for commercial operations is going to be monitored by their processor or creamery. So like under the regulations of that state, and it's also going to be under the regulations of that state. So like the dairy inspector coming to your farm and making sure that your bulk tank temperatures are low enough and they're doing coliform counts and bacterial counts on your milk, um, somatic cell counts on your milk, all those kinds of things. So that like, that's all routinely done every single time. Like you send milk to the creamery, you're going to get some feedback from the creamery as to your milk quality. Um, 
So in, in point of fact, like commercial operations, like they're, they get way more feedback um, without having to like seek it out, so to speak. Right. Like they are monitored all the time. So when we start talking about cottage industries, um, then it really becomes, it's really up to the individual producer to like set the standards by which they want their product to be um, marketed and, you know, what, you know, what they're going to do on farms. So my thing would be if you're going to do off the farm sales in a state where that's allowed, um, you still want, you know, your product to be safe for public consumption. So doing due diligence and monitoring things like testing the animals for zoonotic diseases, looking at what your bacterial counts are in your milk, having regular somatic cell count testing. So one way that is um, like in our herd, and we only use our milk for personal consumption and raising other livestock, not we don't sell milk, but milk quality is still really important to me. So we're on um, DHIR. So and we that means once a month we sample all our an, individual animals and we get a somatic cell count back once a month. If I have animals that have high somatic cells or my herd is higher than normal, um, you know, then I'll start thinking about doing things like bacterial cultures on individual animals or, um, you know, doing some investigating as to like why my my somatic cell count has gone up. Um, so there are programs in place that cottage industry people can use like DHIR that can help them to, um, maintain good milk quality, um, in their herd. And then, um, you know, working with your veterinarian or your local lab to like do milk cultures as needed, or bulk, if you are milking into a small bulk tank, or if you are, um, you know, bucket milking or whatever it might be, just making sure that your product has low bacterial count. Um, but it's the onus in those cases is really on the producer to do those things um, because nobody is checking them. To me, the, you know, commercial creameries or, you know, wherever you're selling commercially is kind of the gold standard for milk quality because they have such stringent regulations. So could we break it down in the sense of what are they doing? Um, to evaluate milk quality and then how can we translate that down to like a smaller scale? So, I mean, if we start, um, you know, from the animal health point of view, like, so having healthy animals, um, you know, a lot of these big farms, they have like standard operating procedures in place, right? So they're going to have a set of protocols that they have worked out with their veterinarian that says, okay, like, this is how I look for sick animals. This is how I treat sick animals. If I am going to treat them, here's the withhold period. So they need to make sure that they're paying attention to those types of things. But making sure there's no reason why a herd of 20 goats can't have standard operating procedures, the same as a commercial operation that has standard operating procedures for how to deal with animal health. Um, and then on an individual basis, if there's an animal that falls outside that standard operating procedure, right, where it's not making sense, that's when you need to get your veterinarian involved. But your veterinarian should be helping you to set up your, you know, protocols for how to deal with a case of mastitis, how to deal with a case of pneumonia, metritis, whatever it might be, 
uh, that's going to affect overall health and of the animal. Um, then in terms of mammary health specifically. The one thing that I would argue um, small scale producers can do that is done at a, at a commercial um, processing facility is um, test uh, milk before it's put in the bulk tank or before it's utilized. If you know the animal's been treated with the medication, especially like animals that are coming fresh, if you're using dry tubes, um, you can absolutely get a hold of um, a test kit that you can run animal side, um, or they're meant to be run on the bulk tank, obviously, but your veterinarian can help you utilize that type of technology, which is used on every shipment of milk that goes to a creamery. Um, and that can be used on a on-farm basis as well. That's a great point. I always forget, like you can get the snap kits that, you know, you can test for the antibiotic that you've put in you know, that you've treated an animal with to make sure that there's no residues. And I think the other thing, um, really common mistake that I see um, is um, goat producers just using the cattle withhold for drugs. Um, and um, so the way that things work is, is that um, a withhold period that's on a label for cows is like basically this below this level is acceptable, right? With goats, when you use basically almost every single antibiotic, with the exception of Cepiofur, Naxel only, um, the the residues, there are none allowed, zero. It has to be zero, nothing. Um, and so um, I think like that's a really um, important difference because A, goats don't metabolize drugs necessarily exactly the same way as cattle, and B, um, what is allowed... Um, for a labeled use and what is allowed for an extra label use are different. Um, things that can be done to like monitor healthy mammary systems. So part of it is, um, you know, your, your milking hygiene. So um, a lot of like commercial operations, they'll like pre-strip the foremilk, right? So you're looking for signs of abnormal milk before you put the machine on the animal. Um, so things like gargot, which is like little chunks off colored milk, like if it's yellow or red or brown or whatever, um, you know, touching, like when you are milking, you're handling the mammary system. So feeling for heat, pain, changes in size between the two sides, all those types of things. And then the other thing that I think all producers all producers should have in their milk room at all times is a California mastitis test. Um, and I literally like in my own herd um, and my recommendation to my clients is that if a goat doesn't eat, if it um, seems down in production, if the two sides are different, if, um, you know, they normally are in the first string and they come in in the last string, that goat gets a CMT. <laughs> um, and, um, CMT is not the be all end all. Um, it tells you, it tells you, so CMT is basically a test for the number of somatic cells that are in the milk. Um, and it's a very subjective test. Um, but basically it's a detergent that you add to the milk. And if there are lots of white blood cells or somatic cells in the milk, it coagulates. Um, and you get this like purple snot looking 
um, stuff in your paddle. So you have a paddle and you mix milk and this detergent together. Um, and there, you know, things like end of lactation, low production, you're going to have a higher somatic cell count in the milk. So your CMT is going to be higher. Um, animals that are just sick, like, so if they have systemic inflammation, they might have an elevated somatic cell count. Um, but for me, it's really about like monitoring the same goat over time. If there are significant differences between the halves of the mammary system, then that's an indicator that it's, that it's in the mammary system, like that it's in the half of the mammary system. If you have one side that's totally normal, one side that's gelling. Um, so having um, CMT in your parlor, I think, is really important. And we do have an episode on um, with Andrea Mangini that's uh, that'll be already out by the time this episode airs. That um, talks a lot more about how to utilize California mastitis test, um, especially for monitoring for like subclinical mastitis. So people can make sure they go check that out. So um, the next kind of component is your milking hygiene practices, and like. For me, good milking hygiene practices are the same for any dairy animal, sheep, goat, cow, water buffalo, whatever. Um, so, and for me, it, it actually starts before they ever come into the milk parlor. So one is their housing. So you want type of housing that's gonna minimize like fecal contamination of the mammary system. Um, and so, um, you know, with cows, we think about um, like having um, free stalls or like there are ways to keep them up out of their own feces. The nice thing about goats is that their fecal material in general tends to be um, a little bit less sticky um, <laughs> to the animal itself. So um, a lot you'll see places like that do bedding packs or they have like... Um, when I was practicing in New Zealand, we had a lot of um, like these, like basically tube um, type um, barns where once a week they would just literally take a bobcat and just scrape the, you know, everything out and then rebed it. And, um, you know, so it um, just making sure that the mammary systems are coming in with minimal like environmental contamination. The other thing with goats, which is very different to cattle, um, though, is that they have a lot more hair, particularly the Swiss breeds on their mammary systems and their legs. Um, so like one of the things I think, and like when I worked in a commercial dairy um, for a few years um, is at Kidding is we would dairy clip them. So basically you, it's kind of, it'd be very similar to crutching a sheep, you basically like clip all the hair off the back of the legs up around the escutcheon and then the mammary system and forerunner. Um, and that a around kidding time that um, reduces like the amount of locia and like at post birthing like fluids that like get mixed into the hair. Um, and it also just like, if you do, you know, like, if it rains and you have mud and or whatever, like it reduces the amount of like contamination up the legs and around the mammary system. So I think that's a big difference. I know like in cattle, like um, shaving the tails or 
um, um, uh, burning the, you know, flash burning the hair off the udder, like those kinds of things. But like with goats, it's actually, it's like, there's a lot more hair. Um, and so I think that, you know, that is something that you can do before they, these are things like before they ever come into the milk parlor that are going to affect milk hygiene. What about in cattle? I always think of, um, taking actual care of the udder itself, because even if you have a really beautiful environment, if you're blowing out teat ends while you're milking, then they're going to be way more susceptible. Um, or if you're not doing pre or post dip in cattle, um, you're leaving them open. So how about stuff like that? So that's exactly the same. So for me, so you have, try and have as clean environment as you can reduce the about amount of contamination that's on the animal. Then they come into the milk parlor and when they come into the milk parlor, like they're, I would say like my ideal protocol would be to pre dip. If you want to strip for milk, I actually do it after the pre-dip, not before the pre-dip. So um, do pre-dip and then um, depending on what pre-dip product you're using, like I use a, my, I use a pre-dip or pre-spray. I actually use a spray, not a um, dip. We can talk about the differences between those. Um, and then I actually use a betadine um, like water wipe and then... I use a dry towel. Um, and then if that's when I would do the strip, the four milk, um, and then you, um, put your machine on, or you're going to hand milk, whatever it might be. Um, and then if you're going to machine milk, other things that are really important to utter quality are your pulsation rate, your, um, your pressure, how much vacuum you have on the teat end, um, maintaining your liners in good condition. And so making sure like during milking that there's no squawking, which is where air is getting, um, sucked in, um, next to the teat, um, making sure that you're not over milking, um, animals. So leaving the inflations on for too long. Um, so there's, all these things that, especially if you're milking by machine, need to be paid attention to. The other thing, and I have mixed feelings about this, is your hand hygiene, right? So the milker's hand hygiene. Um, I, so gloves seem like the easiest thing, right? Like if you wear gloves, like then you're not dealing with any of this bacteria and stuff that it's on the human skin. One of the things that I, find that people that wear gloves do is that they think just because they have gloves on that they're clean. And so you'll like see them and you're like, when was the last time you changed your pair of gloves? Like you've milked 200 head and you have a hole in them and like there's shit on the back of one. I should, you're going to take out the shit, right? There's fecal material on the back of your, you know, your glove, like that, defeats the purpose of wearing gloves, right? So I find sometimes people who hand milk, they're much more conscientious um, when they're not wearing gloves because they like wash their hands between every goat. Just wearing gloves is not enough. Wearing gloves and still practicing good hygiene is really important. And also, even if you are wearing gloves and practicing good hygiene, 
you could still transmit pathogens from one goat to another. You, your goats could be a source of contamination as well. So um, in foods that have issues with like Staph aureus or other, you know, contagious mastitis, um, that might mean changing gloves between strings if you have like a separate contagious mastitis string or um, potentially between goats if you only have a small number of goats. And- right. And like if you get milk on your hands or like that kind of stuff, like just being conscientious and like change if there's a problem like change your gloves like you know so I think yeah that's a really um kind of important thing and then um so you milk your goat out make sure so like um now I am not a milking machine expert um by any means. Well, I don't think many of our listeners will be either. So that's actually right. great. So, but I do like, so for a small, like a goat side um, portable milking machine, I run when the machine is on, you should be between about 12 um, and 15 pounds per square inch of pressure. Uh, 12 and 13, what did I say? It should be 12 to 13. Um, and the other thing that you'll notice a lot of goat producers and the problem is, is there's not a lot of science for this, but like pulsation rates, goat producers tend to run much faster pulsation rates than cattle, cattle producers. And part of it is because over the years, we've just had to trial and error and figure out what, what our goats milk out the best on. Um, and I, you know, I had an old dairyman when I was growing up and his thing was goats milk out the best if your pulsation rate is about what a kid nurses at. And I was like, that's really, really fast. Like, um, I don't run mine that fast, but mine's definitely faster than like if you walk into a cow parlor, Um, you know, but I do find that there's a lot more variation in pulsation rate for goats than there between producers than there is for cattle. And part of it is because we don't actually have a lot of science to tell us what is the best pulsation rate. Right. And there's probably a difference in breeds too. Wouldn't you imagine like a Toggenberg or a Nubian is going to milk out differently than a Nigerian dwarf or something like that. Well, And and then that's the other thing is like having the appropriate equipment, right? So, um, there are standard breed, say, inflations, and there are miniature breed inflations. Um, I do know a couple of herds that have mixed um, miniature and large, and they tend to use the Nigerian inflations on everything, um, mm-hmm. not the other way around. Um, and so, yeah, so making sure, and then you're, in terms of, like, your machine maintenance is really important, like, inter- so um, changing out your liners right um regularly i for like so the recommendations for rubber are to change them out every 2000 to 2500 milkings or every four to six months um latex is about twice that long um but um again always having spare parts on hand for you don't want to like patch if something goes wrong with your inflations like you do not want to patch them like so you need to have like have spare liners have spare like depending on what type of inflation you're using like i use an inflation that has a lot of moving parts and it's got like a spring and it's got like the there's like a a flange that actually allows the air to come in and out that flange breaks 
that's like the most common place where my inflations break. So I have a bunch of those flanges that I can like replace in my unit so that I'm not trying to patch together something and it's not working and then the pressures aren't right or I'm over milking or under milking the does. Um, so yeah, so just making sure that your milking machine is running well and that like the inflations are all good. And then once you're finished milking out the animals, um, is post dipping. So, and you'll see a lot of different, um, products on the market. Personally, I prefer betadine based or iodine based products. Um, chlorhex, I know I, we, um, a lot of people like to use Fightback or chlorhexidine based, um, that has zero efficacy against pseudomonas, um, mastitis or pseudomonas in general. And pseudomonas is a pathogen that causes mastitis. Um, and so it's definitely, um, a concern when you're only using a chlorhexidine based, um, product. And then, um, we can kind of, there's also, um, spraying versus dipping. Um, so you'll see like teat dip cups and then you have sprays. Um, the weakness of the spray is that often people don't pay a lot of attention to like how well the tea is coated. And a, the biggest mistake I see is like, I'll go look behind somebody that has sprayed teats and the back of the teat looks great. And then the front of the teat has nothing on it. Um, so if you're going to spray, you just need to like be really conscientious that you are getting the whole end of the teat. Um, dips, you get a lot better coating of the teat. However, you need to keep your dip cups clean because we have cultured really gross things out of dip cups where the hygiene of the dip cup is bad. So, um, at, you know, at the end of milking, removing any of the, you know, dip that's in there, um, keeping it covered in between milking so that there's not like debris from the environment getting in there. If you dip a goat and you see that some debris falls off of her into the dip cup, like empty the dip cup and, you know, refill the dip cup. Um, so those are um, using different. So I think it's really important to use a different pre-dip dip cup and post-dip dip cup um, because at one, the, the mammary system is dirty with the pre-dip and it's clean, should be clean with the post-dip. So um those, whereas like if you're using a spray, it's never coming in contact with the animal. So you can use the same spray pre and post, um, if you want. Um, since there's not really any hard and fast rules about what levels you should use in your equipment, as far as like strength of the vacuum or frequency, um, what are some signs of issues with equipment that producers might see on their animals when they're in the parlor that could indicate, Hey, you're kind of headed for, um, some, some teeth problems later on. The common theme when we compare cattle to goats is variability, both in producers and animals. So cattle have spent many years with lots of like numbers and genetics like breeding animals that all have the same teat size that are all pretty much on the same place in the udder. and yes you see variations but not like you see in goats so like in goats you have everything from like a three-quarter inch long 
half inch across teat to a teat that is five inches long and four inches across. Like, so the, so the teat size and shape is like super variable. So it also, and also orifice size can be super variable, but in general, it should make, take five to 10 minutes to milk out a goat on the machine. And if it's taking longer than, if it's taking less than that, you have really not very good milkers. <laughs> if it's taking more than that, then there's likely a potential problem with letdown. If you have individual animals, like I have a doe, and if she was in a commercial dairy, she would have probably been cold because she has tiny little orifices and she takes forever to milk out on the machine. But that is normal for her and she's not being overmilked. But she's like my pain in the ass because it makes that one string take really long time. Um, so in general, it should be five to 10 minutes to milk a goat out. Um, if you're taking, if all your strings are taking substantially longer than that, there is some, ish, some issue with your machine. Um, and it could be that does are holding their milk up because they don't like the pulsation rate. They don't like the vacuum, whatever it might be. Um, there's not enough vacuum. There's too much vacuum. Um, there's not enough rest time, right? So in your pulsation rate. Um, and when you start to have the machines being left on for too long, you're going to start to see teat end injury. So you'll start to see um, like basically kind of what, if you look at the orifice, kind of like cauliflowery tissue starting to like develop around the teat ends. Um, what that does is it damages the ability of the teat to seal um, after milking. Um, it creates cracks and crevices where the skin, so we have bacteria on our skin. Goats have bacteria on their skin. It's normal. It's like normal fauna and flora that live on your skin. Um, those are often pathogens that we then see mastitis with because they get into the mammary gland, which is not a normal place for them, but it's full of this nice nutrient milk where they can replicate and grow, overgrow, and then they create mastitis. When you have damaged teat ends, when you have cracked teat ends, or you have these like little cauliflower frondy um, orifices, like that can harbor the bacteria. It gives it easier access to the mammary gland itself. And so you're going to increase your risk of mastitis. Um, so those are kind of things to look for um, in terms of milking machines not working and then therefore damaging the mammary. Um, okay. And then I guess the other one last comment that I actually had on um, hygiene, milking hygiene, um, and this is, again, this is actually after they leave the parlor. And you'll notice on cow dairies, like they feed out when the cows, like right before the cows leave the milk parlor. So the string that is getting milked, like their barn is getting fed while they're in the milk parlor. So they go back to the barn so they've been post-dipped, but their orifices are really open, right? Because they've been just been milked. So there's like no keratin plug, there's nothing. Like it's open to the environment. So having feed for them when they return to their living facility keeps them standing. It keeps their udder out of the environment for a period of time. So that is the best practice is to feed right after, like right after you milk or have feed in the bunks when they return from the milk room. Um, 
um, fresh feed. Like, no, no, yeah. So like your fresh feed that you feed twice a day should be right after milking or during milk. Like my husband feeds for me, I'm very lucky. And he, so he feeds while I'm milking. So the goats go straight out of the milk room and back to the mangers and start eating. And then the last component is how you handle your milk. And really the kind of two key things are filtration and, and cooling. Um, so in a commercial operation, you're going to have an inline filter. So as the milk is milked out of the doughs into the bulk tank, it's going to go through an inline filter and that's going to remove like basically gross contamination. Um, and then going into the bulk tank, it's going to immediately be chilled. So in a commercial operation, um, milk should be cooled down to 50 degrees within the first hour and 40 degrees within the second hour. And then any milk added to that bulk tank in subsequent milkings shouldn't go above 40 degrees. Um, and so when you then want to take that for your cottage producers, that means having some way to chill your milk quickly. Um, and if you think about like, so the, the volume that you're trying to chill, um, the larger the volume, the harder it is to chill it down quickly, especially if you're using um, like a non-bulk tank method. So some of the things that I've seen done are like half gallon jars put into ice water. Um, so you basically take your, get your milk, strain it, and then put it into um, ice water so that it cools really rapidly. Just putting a half gallon jar into the refrigerator probably actually doesn't get it down to the what would be considered regulation for a commercial producer um, by just sticking it into the fridge. So you could stick it in maybe into a freezer would, but yeah, I, the ice bath, ice water, I find for like your backyard or um, small producer, it is a really good method. Um, you want it to be clean, ice, like it needs to be clean and your jar needs to be really, really well sealed. Um, so like using mason jars um, with a sealed lid really tight um, is a good way and not, not submerging the seal under the water. Our goal is to produce milk with really low bacterial counts, right? But everything we've talked about, these are barn yard animals that we're taking a product from and they live in an environment where there's bacteria there's bacteria that lives on their skin like we cannot keep bacteria from getting into the milk like that's an impossibility so what we're trying to do by chilling it is to stop any reproduction of the bacteria in the milk so the so that the counts of bacteria that are basically there are the counts that were there when they milked the animal and that's all, and we don't get any bloom or growth of bacteria um, until we make cheese and then we put the bacteria that we want in there. <laughs> and then I think the other thing um, in terms of um, flavor, chilling also affects flavor of the milk and the long, like this, and this may be a little bit anecdotal, but I have a lot of experience drinking goat's milk in my life. And um, the faster you get it chilled, the better it maintains its like sweet, rich flavor. Um, and when you don't get that chilling quite right, then spoilage in the refrigerator, like if, you're, if you are drinking your own product, 
is much quicker if it doesn't get cooled. And, and does that have to do with bacterial growth? Yes, it might have to do with bacterial growth, but I think there are also other components in milk that the aromatic compounds of milk that change when it's not cooled. And I would even say chilling before you pat, like I would chill it. And then if I'm going to pasteurize it, I would pasteurize it. Awesome. That was a very thorough review of like all of the steps of milk quality. This is fantastic. This is what we need. Um, I think our listeners are going to learn a lot from this podcast. Um, so I did have one other question um, because I imagine that a lot of the veterinarians listening to this could be small animal vets that don't have a ton of experience with parlor evaluation or mastitis or teat end evaluation. And even some of our dairy vets that might be not be, you know, they're not all my boss, Dr. Gordon, who that's his bread and butter. Um, so what kind of resources are out there for veterinarians? Um, what kind of resources are out there for helping with equipment, equipment maintenance, or even deciding if there is a problem with equipment and then parlor evaluation stuff? When it comes to the machines and the particularly parlors, like the, um, the manufacturer is your like first go-to like stop. Like they, if it's a commercial parlor and they have set it up, like they know the ins and outs of that machine. So if you think there's a problem with the milking machine, like in a commercial dairy, like your first stop should be talking to the manufacturer and having them come out and test the machine. So look at, are the pressures right? Is the milk flow right? Like is, you know, has something happened and like the pipes aren't actually in the same place that they were in before. And so you're having like pooling of milk somewhere. Like they know what, you know, all of the like ins and outs of how the parlor should be set up. And so that's like my first stop for those, those, for commercial producers, um, for <laughs> for cottage producers, it's a little bit more the wild, wild west because so there so you still can go to the manufacturer, right? And there are some really, really good um, like portable machines with really reputable manufacturers, and going back to them like if you have a problem and being like, okay, I'm losing pressure and I can't figure out why I'm losing pressure in my machine. Um, and they should be able to help you with that. One of the difficulties is that like I bought my machine from Missouri and, and so like, I'm not gonna, I can't afford to send my machine back to Missouri to get, to get like, um, uh, like maintenance once a year, you know, like, so I've had to learn to do the maintenance, but I've done it by talking to them, by saying, okay, like I was having a problem when I was losing pressure. Well, there's these like little um, valves in the machine that I use that they actually need to be cleaned regularly. So I learned how to pull my machine apart and clean those. But I did that after consulting with the manufacturer who was like, okay, what are the problems you're having? Let's troubleshoot like what the problems are. And then these are the things that I can tell you that might be the problem. And so then look at those things. Um, you know, there are um, places like um, where there are um, people that do like small engine work. A lot of times they're pretty knowledgeable about like vacuum pumps and stuff. 
Um, or like the local dairy supply shop might have somebody that knows about milking machines. So like those are places that you can turn to like try and get help if you're struggling to like with some issues with the milking machine. Or, I mean, you can always call your uh, preferred um, vet school if you, as a veterinarian, if you're, you know, want help troubleshooting or doing parlor evaluations. Um, I know like Quality Milk up at Cornell and um, Dr. Gordon at Iowa State, they they love talking about milk quality. So, and uh, now Dr. Smith as well. Um, um, all right. So my last question here for you um, to wrap up is just kind of an overview of what are some aspects of goat milk quality that are different in goats than, um, than on the cow side, as I'm imagining a lot of bovine vets are listening to this as well. Um, so things maybe like considerations for cheese production, um, as most of our bovine milk seems to go for, or a good portion of bovine milk goes for fluid milk. Um, and then differences in protein types or uh, component concentration differences. Um, can you just touch on the differences between uh, cattle and goats? Right. So in terms of um, qual like milk quality, bacterial counts, um, I don't, there is no difference. Like clean milk, free from debris, free from antibiotics, free from bacteria, any adulteration to the milk is the same. Um, one difference that you'll see in the regulation side of things um, is somatic cell count. Um, and I have really mixed feelings about this. Um, I The somatic cell count limits for goats tend to be between a million and a million and a half is what is allowed um, by regulation. And this is because historically goats have had higher somatic cell counts. Now they do shed more epithelial cells into their milk than cattle do. So that is a somatic cell, right? Any cell with a nucleus is a somatic cell. Um, that said, having milked goats for all of my life and been on DHIA for all of my, for 25 plus years, um, I, my herd has a somatic cell count that would rival any like quality cow dairy. Like in general, my somatic cells run between per, per animal between 50,000 and maybe 600,000. And um, if I get an animal over 750,000, I start to worry. If I get an animal over a million, I am culturing that animal. So I... I do wonder if historically milking hygiene has not been maybe as good. The other thing is I think that in general, um, my experience with some of the big commercial dairies in the early years of dairying in California was that animal health was more of an issue. Um, oh, it was um, cheaper to replace goats than it was to treat them or, you know, so... It, um, I think the emphasis on herd health and animal health was not as much as it was in, in dairy cattle farms. And so we have this like historic, I think that healthy goat herds can easily have a bulk tank somatic cell under 500,000. Um, the, for cattle, the federal regulation is 750,000. Um, and for like where I live, state of California is below 100, 600,000 goats are allowed to be 
less than a million and a half in California. Um, so that is a difference, but I, I, I question whether or not that is how it should be. <laughs> we want to have as low a somatic cell count as possible because the somatic cell count is a reflection of the health of the mammary gland. Um, it's, it's one parameter that we can use to measure the health of the mammary gland, and we want to have healthy mammary systems producing milk. Um, so, th so that would be one difference in regulation, whether physiologically that should be the difference or not is still debatable. Um, the other thing is that, um, there is, so the vast majority of the dairy cattle herd in the United States are Holsteins. And then we have Jersey's being number two. And then, you know, I would just say a smattering of the other breeds, but do they really have an impact on the overall like components of the milk, the herd, the herd cattle, dairy cattle herd in the United States? No. Um, goats, we have a huge variation in breed. Like the, variation in the components between breeds is spectacular. So our, for example, um, fat percentage ranges probably from Toggenbergs would, and maybe Oberhosleys would be on the lower end around two and a half percent to Nigerian dwarfs, which regularly up on the seven to 8% butterfat range. Um, and so, and then everybody else kind of falls somewhere in between. So depending on your operation, what breeds you have, the components. And then protein follows fat, but not as I would say proteins are actually more compact um, than, than fat percentages. We see less variation in protein um, than we do in fat percentage. Um, the way that the fat um, micelles are arranged in the goat is different to cattle. So it's a, it's a smaller, um, micelle. And so it has, there's way more surface area. Um, and it's why they don't glom together and then rise to the top. Like you would see in like, if you took, um, non-homogenized cow's milk. So, and it doesn't get homogenized, even like Mayenberg who sells fluid goat's milk, they don't have to put it through a homogenizer. Um, so the fat micelles are really different. And then in terms of the proteins, they actually have, like, they have the same proteins, like they have alpha S1 casein, they'll have beta casein, goats have all those proteins. The genes are slightly different than what are reported in cattle. And there are a lot of producers that are now really starting to focus on using those, particularly people that are, um, making cheese. Um, because the different um, alleles or genes for the casein um, produce different amounts of protein. And protein is really the most important factor in cheese production, in your yield of cheese production. The other thing is that um, all the reported literature, the high protein alleles also have higher fat. So you're, you have higher solids, total solids, including fat relative to other um, animals if you have the high high protein allele. Um, interestingly, and like in cattle, you have the, the A2 milk, right? Which is where it's the um, beta 
casein and it's only the A2 form or more of the A2 form than the A1 form. And there's theories that that might be less allergenic. Um, we do have people looking into that with the goat's milk and getting the null or the low um, alpha S1 casein alleles um, and trying to produce milk for fluid consumption um, for, from those for people that are not as tolerant of casein protein. Um, so those are, those are kind of, I think those are like the biggest differences or, and things unique to goats. Um, but yeah, right now there's, um, I know quite a lot of cheese producers that are actually testing their animals and selecting bucks, um, that are the high alleles, particularly in some of our higher production breeds. So Sonnen and Alpine, where their volumes are hot, really high, but they haven't traditionally had as high a protein or fat, but by selecting those high alleles, they're trying to increase the percentage, um, of, of protein that is um, in the milk. And then uh, the last thing I'll add is that a lot of um, commercial producers are often paid um, premiums for protein or for solids um, that would be, that would be different to cattle as well. Like the way that milk um, is paid for, like you is, is not just about, uh, hundred weight. Like it's not just about how much volume there is. It's about components play a role in how much you get paid for your milk. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge with us today, Dr. Smith. Um, it's really been an educational experience for me um, getting to chat with you. And I, I'm sure that our listeners got a lot out of this episode. So if folks have questions that we didn't quite get to on the podcast today, as always, you can email dairygoatextension at iastate.edu and um, we will try and get those questions answered for you. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.